This is Champagne Problems, where we come together to explore the gray areas of drinking. This is a judgment-free zone where we can all take a look at how we make decisions about our relationship with alcohol. Welcome back to Champagne Problems. Today we are in the studio with Dr. Judson Brewer, affectionately known as Dr. Judd, who is a renowned addiction psychiatrist and neuroscientist. He serves as an executive medical director of behavioral health at ShareCare. He's also an associate professor of behavioral and social sciences in the School of Public Health at Brown University. He's the director of research and innovation at the Mindfulness Center at Brown. We are pumped to have him in the studio. We were all nerding out about some of his work today. So without further ado, here we go. All right. Good morning, Dr. Judson Brewer. Welcome to Champagne Problems. We have so much excitement around you being here. We were fangirling a little bit before you came on just about your work and the excitement around some of the verbiage that you've used that we've just never heard before. And even being in this field, kind of noticing the things that have started to emerge post-pandemic or mid-pandemic, I guess, and just the ways that we're starting to tackle some of these issues and really finding a lot of inspiration in some of your work of just some new ways to talk about and tackle anxiety. So just want to jump straight in. Would you mind giving our listeners a quick bio into just who you are, where you're from, kind of background, and what led you down this personal and professional path? So I actually grew up in Indiana um, and, you know, wasn't interested in this mindfulness stuff uh, at all, wasn't, didn't even, wasn't even on my radar. Uh, but when I graduated from college, I was pretty stressed out, was anxious, and started meditating my first day of medical school and found that that was helpful for me. And I also learned, I had no idea how little I knew about my own mind. <laughs> and, and, you know, I can learn synapses and, and neurotransmitters and all that in medical school and, you know, neuroscience training, but I didn't actually learn much about the, the workings of the mind in medical school or residency. You know, even being trained as an addiction psychiatrist, getting really good training, it was starting to, it was only when I was in residency and I actually shifted my career from studying molecular biology. Like I was really interested in why we get sick and we get stressed out and I was doing mouse model work and all the, all that stuff. But I shifted that to looking, you know, seeing how we can actually apply these things to humans. And at that time started combining what I was learning about my own mind through my own meditation practice with what I was learning clinically. And it was really interesting to see that my patients in, in my addiction clinic in particular were talking the same language that the ancient Buddhist psychology that I'd been learning uh, was, you know, the same words, they were, they were using the same words. And so that was, I thought, wow, this can't be a coincidence. And so started thinking, well, maybe I can just study this stuff, this mindfulness stuff. <laughs> which really there was no no real research out there at the time. I was just starting, people starting to touch the surface of it. And lo and behold, you know, all this stuff just started coming together. And, you know, we did a study with alcohol, alcohol and cocaine use disorder, got as you know better results than gold standard treatment for helping people not physiologically and psychologically react to stressors, for example, that, that lead to relapse. 
oh. got five times the crit rates of gold standard treatment in, in a smoking study that I'd done. This was when I was an assistant professor at Yale, you know, and on and on, 40% reduction in craving related eating. Holy we just cow. published some studies on app-based, wow. um, yeah, mindfulness training for anxiety and, you know, 67% reduction. So that's, um, that's kind of the trajectory was like, I had no idea I was going to do this to the point where now I'm like, I can't imagine doing anything else because this is so rich and so helpful for my patients. Yeah. The, in, the info has been around for a while. We just, we just had to find it. <laughs> I know. Yeah. It's crazy. This is one of the things we hear, I think, most in our offices, but also just around the podcast around alcohol use is just, you know, am I anxious? Is the alcohol making me anxious? Am I treating my anxiety with the alcohol and that sort of thing? And um, I heard you describe one of the kind of how difficult it is to define anxiety. And you were talking about like, it's like pornography. Can you give us kind of that analogy and just why that is? You know it when yeah. you see it. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. That, um, so that's actually how I start my unwinding anxiety book is something, you know, first chapter is like, you know, anxiety is like pornography. And that, that Supreme Court quote, I think it's from one of the Supreme Court justices from the 1960s. You know, it, it had resonated with me when I remember uh, these, um, there's something about art and, and this guy Maplethorpe back in the, I don't know, 90s or something where he was controversial in his art. And people are saying, is that pornography? Is that art? And then, you know, somebody invoked this, well, I, I don't, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. And for anxiety, I didn't even know it when it was staring me in the face. You know, my senior year of college, I was so wound up with anxiety that my, my guts had to let me know how anxious I was. I won't go into the gory <laughs> details, but let's just say I knew where all the bathrooms were yeah, on campus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's one of the, the really hard things to define. And that's the question I get a lot is, do I have anxiety? Is that just like a trendy word for like, I'm stressed? Like, mm -hmm. is this something I actually suffer from? Is this diagnosable? And one of the things that I had seen in your work that made a ton of sense and is kind of the way that I explain it to um, my clients, but just in different languages, just this idea that this equation of fear plus uncertainty equals anxiety. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit just about kind of what's going on there with different parts of the brain, how anxiety is made up? Yes. And this is where it, you know, my neuroscience background happens to be helpful, <laughs> you know, kind of understanding how our brains got set up to help us form habits in the first place and how anxiety kind of plays on this habit formation process and kind of gets stuck in a, in a side loop that's not as helpful for our survival. So the, the basic story is that, you know, we, we have to form habits to survive, you know, imagine doing, having to relearn everything from walking to eating, to making coffee, you know, and being exhausted by breakfast. And if we look at our survival pieces, we also need to form habits. So we remember where food is, you know, our ancient ancestors didn't have refrigerators, so they all had to go find food and remember where it was. And they also had to remember where the danger was so they could avoid it. And this is, you know, this is still at play in modern day. We, we learned this, what's called reward-based learning or reinforcement learning. This is what forms, you know, 95% of our waking life in terms of we're doing things habitually. And it, you think of it, I think of it this way is, is set and forget. We set a habit, you know, it's like, okay, this is helpful. And then we forget about the details. So as a concrete example, fear, 
you know, is a really helpful survival mechanism. If we, you know, step out onto a busy street and we see a car coming right at us, we learn to, you know, look both ways before crossing the street. Or in today, in the modern world, we learn to put yeah. our phone away. Some people, right. <laughs> and look, stop yeah. staring look at our screen while we're walking down the sidewalk and into the street. <laughs> So fear is a helpful learning mechanism. And in fact, it only takes three elements for it to form any habit, a trigger, a behavior, and a result, right? So if the trigger is that we see the car coming at us, the behavior is that we jump back onto the sidewalk and we, and the result is that we don't get killed, you know, we learn, okay, look both ways. So here, this, this part of this ancient survival part of our brain uh, pairs with a newer part of our brain that mostly involved evolving the prefrontal cortex that helps us survive in a different way, which is through thinking and planning. And the way our prefrontal cortex does that is by taking previous situations that we've been in and projecting them into the future. So let's use the crossing the street analogy. So if, if in the past we saw that, it, you know, cars are dangerous, we can then when we walk up to another street, we can project uh, our past experience. Oh, when I look both ways, this happens. When I don't look both ways, this happens. We can project that into the future, like, okay, what should I do now? And then, you know, we can pick this scenario that makes the most sense. So look both ways before crossing the street. So it takes our past experience, projects it into the future so that we can plan for the future. So I'm, I'm going to plan to look both ways before crossing the street. The problem here, as you point out, is when we combine fear with uncertainty. So uncertainty require, makes our brain start going into a bunch of different simulations to try to figure out what the best solution is. But if there's too much uncertainty, then our brain can spin out into anxiety where we, instead of saying, okay, I'm gonna, you know, this, this, or this, we start going into the what if, what if, what if, what if. And then we just start worrying about the future. So that, you know, that anxiety is basically fear of the future. We're not actually in danger mm -hmm. right now. It's only that we were worried that we might be in danger in the future. And the irony here, ready for this, that worry makes it harder for us to think and plan for the future. <laughs> right. So it's actually anti-survival. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. When you encounter people that say things like the anxiety helps me kind of plan for the future, right? Or it helps me feel prepared. I mean, what's your kind of response to that? Is it just a straight neuro response like, of like not false? Very efficient. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So here it depends on who you know. If I'm talking to a patient in my in my office, <laughs> I can't just say no. That's not how your brain works because it's not very helpful <laughs> for them. But I can ask them, you know, does you know does just doing something equal doing something that's helpful? Then the answer is mm -hmm. no. You know, we could be spinning our wheels like if we're stuck in sand. We're driving our car and we're stuck in the sand, and we just hit the gas and we spin more. We're going to actually dig ourselves deeper into the sand. So doing something does not equal doing something helpful. And so that's the really critical distinction is with worrying, it feels like, well, if I, even though I can't affect this, you know, the future, I can at least do something. And that doing something feels better than doing nothing until we see very clearly that the doing something makes things worse. And that's, that's the key to actually unwinding some of these habit loops around anxiety. And we can we can get into the details, but that's the short answer is I really try to help people see what you're doing. Is it actually helping you? You know, is the worrying right. actually helping? 
And it also helps them see the difference between worry and planning. Those are two completely different things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I have been listening. Um, I haven't completed your book, but I've been listening to it. The piece about how often people want to know why they have anxiety, and and mm -hmm. and I and I understand that that is somewhat beside the point. Uh, uh, not a hundred percent, but uh, but I understand that based on everything you just said, it's it's more about in the moment practices and how to break the loop and how to break the habit. But, I mean, I have, and maybe this, is, this will fall right into your lap for a perfect explanation, but all I do is think about why I have anxiety. <laughs> mm -hmm. This is really why we had you on the same show. <laughs> either, way, either way, the uncertainty, the fear, the, you know, those things creep up because of some sort of mental state that I'm in, that I have been in, you know, and it, and it, in perpetuation, I think is the key word, but I definitely wonder why I have it so badly. <laughs> yeah. So, so tell me if you can relate to this. And this is such a common thing. I wrote a chapter about it in my book. You know, I call it the why habit loop. So if a lot of my patients will come in and, you know, they'll come in and say, well, why do I have this? And we get to the root of it, which is they think that if they can figure out why they have anxiety, <laughs> mm -hmm. they can fix it. You know, it's like mm -hmm. the whack-a-mole. Oh, here's the reason that I have anxiety. So I can just yeah. avoid, fix, change. So does it, can you relate 100%, to that? 100% because I know why, but I still have it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yes, I can relate. So like you're pointing out, yeah. So there are a million reasons we could have anxiety. You know, we could not have won the genetic lottery where we might be more predisposed to having feelings of anxiety. We might have learned it, and this can be in combination. We could have inherited those genes from our parents, and we could also have learned the environmental piece from our parents as well, where if we had parents that worried a lot, then that kind of wears off. You know, we, we learned that through their modeling. So that, you know, the past that created the present, we can't change the past, right? I don't know if you've heard, I love this saying, forgiveness is giving up hope of a better past. Yeah. Have you heard that? That's so good. Yeah. So, yeah. And it's a great kind of, I think that's, an, um, that fits in here because if we look at this why, often it's related to, well, if I can figure out what it was usually in the past that caused this, then I can fix this. But we can't figure, even if we do figure it out, like you're pointing out, if it's in the past, we can't change the past mm -hmm. anyway, right? So, mm -hmm. and the other thing is, so if we, if we nerd out a little bit and put on our neuroscience hats, you can't change a habit based on the why, which seems crazy, mm -hmm. right? The triggers, everybody's looking for the trigger so they can avoid the trigger or change, but it's not actually the trigger that reinforces a behavior. It's how rewarding the behavior is. That's why it's called re reward-based learning, right? So if a behavior is rein, it's reinforced through how rewarding it is, which has nothing to do with the trigger. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if, if we're focusing all of our energy on the triggers, we're not even actually looking at the right part of the equation to, ch to change the behavior. So that's the other piece, you know, even if we can figure out why, like you're pointing out, okay, now I know why. Now what? Yeah. Well, it's still now happening what? because that's not how our brains work. Yes. So when you say behavior, are you talking about our response to that, that jolt, that feeling? Yeah. So this was the part of your work that I got like crazy excited about was this idea of 
like the set it and forget it, mm-hmm. right? The encoding and how that could only take one time if the reward is powerful enough, then it's encoded. And then that's kind of your go-to. And it's almost like your brain's learned it, it's encoded it, and it's in there. Can you talk a little bit about the process of relearning and re-encoding more accurately over time? I'd be happy to. So this this set and forget, we think of this as, uh, so the, the nerd terms are kind of reward valuation. And there are these two researchers back in the 70s, actually, that came up with the formula that's still used in neuroscience research today. These researchers, Rascorla and Wagner, it's called the Rascorla-Wagner model of reinforcement learning. And what it shows, it's actually only, it's a very simple equation so that um, the reward value is based on the previous reward value of like how rewarding it was plus an error term. So let's use a concrete example. Uh, how about chocolate cake, right? So we all- Yes, definitely. <laughs> okay. Flourless. Don't mess up so my cake all... addiction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we all have reward value, uh, reward values set up for different types of cake in our brain. I mean, her flourless, you know, we can probably think of the different types of cakes that are also set up as this, in this hierarchy, meaning if I'm given a choice between three different types of cake based on the types of cake, like if I've had those cakes before, then my brain's going to say, oh yeah, I like that one more than the other. And it helps us make decisions, right? That's the set and forget. So we're like, I don't have to re I don't have to eat three of these again to figure out which one I like the most. If I have a good sense that it's from the same bakery or whatever. Now, the only way to update that reward value is to bring in one simple ingredient, which is awareness, right? And the reason I say that is that this error term, uh, it has a function to help us update reward value based on what we are expecting. That's what, you know, it's like, oh, I like chocolate cake. We expect it to be so good. And if we pay attention, let's say it's a new bakery that we haven't been to before and we see their new flourless chocolate cake. And we're like, oh, that looks good. We eat it. It was like the best cake that we've ever. We're like, oh yeah, yeah. This is the oh, I can't, I can't, I have no words, but, but my brain has words. It says that's good. Do that again, and that's mm-hmm. what's called a positive prediction error because it was better than expected, better than predicted. Okay, if I eat it, I'm like, is this a, you know, flourless because they packed it with salt? You know, it tastes terrible. You know, and so if I eat the cake and it's terrible, or it's just like, eh, I've had better, we get a negative prediction error, meaning it's less, uh, less than predicted. You know, the, the reward value is less than predicted. We learn in both situations. If it's better mm-hmm. than predicted, we learn, ooh, eat that one again. If it's worse than predicted, then we learn, oh, not so good. Don't go back there, right? And that's how we change behavior with anything. And notice how it only takes one thing. It doesn't take willpower. It's not like I really want to like this cake that, you know, my family made for me. And, you know, they're all excited for me to eat it. And I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm going to look happy when I eat this, but I'm just not that excited. <laughs> you know, we, we can't force ourselves to like something more and we can't force ourselves to stop liking it. You know, like, oh, flourless chocolate cake. You know, I just eat a lot of it. So here it's really about awareness. Awareness updates the reward value. And so let's, we'll just go on with the example with cake. It's not like we're going to suddenly make cake taste bad by eating it. But if it is from a bakery that shouldn't be open, then our brain will say you shouldn't, you shouldn't go there, but we can also look at how much we eat. Right. 
and I'll, I'll, I'll stop in a minute, but there's a, um, my lab just finished a study where we actually asked this question, how long does it actually take for that reward value to change just by having people pay attention as they eat? So we, we have this Eat Right Now app that we embedded this, um, this craving tool in to have, really, have people really pay attention as they eat. And it only takes 10 to 15 times of somebody overeating for that reward value, right, for this, to drop below zero. Holy cow. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So it doesn't, and it makes sense, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, we can't, we don't, we can't afford to be chased 20 times by a saber-toothed tiger to learn that that thing is dangerous. (laughs) Right. Wow. I love the idea of just kind of being able to update that. And I think the thing that spoke to me is, it is possible you can do it, you can't update it, but without awareness, you're really just not going to get there. So if you keep going in, I always think of my mom had sticky toffee pudding one time at one restaurant and it was like the best thing ever. And anytime it's on a menu, she's like, Ooh, I'm going to get that. And it's always with the expectation that it's going to taste the way that one did. And there's always kind of this moment of like, yeah, it was okay, you know, but it wasn't the same. And I'm like, when is she going to, when's the, when's the mark where we learn that like, we don't actually really like sticky toffee pudding. It was that one time that it was really amazing, you know, but I think that kind of habit loop is so fascinating because I've just never put kind of anxiety and reward driven behavior into that category. And so to look at it as something that can be updated and then kind of the obvious segue into you have to have awareness. This really is the key component to tackling this thing, which is why every client of ours is going to roll their eyes when we go, um, have you tried mindfulness? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, and they I've go, tried. seriously? I yeah, I tried it, it once. I, you know? <laughs> I hate the way that people on the app talk in the meditation. It's like, okay, but there's so much That's more the to it. And you've got to kind of look at just the awareness component and how crucial that is to actually updating that information for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting you mentioned apps because we took a slightly different approach than a lot of the meditation apps out there uh, with this unwinding anxiety app, which is to start by teaching people how their brains work and helping them map Mm -hmm. out these habit loops around anxiety before we even bring in practices and Part of that was based on the research that I'd done previously, you know, with our like our smoking trial that I mentioned, where we got these five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. We were finding that informal practices were helping people work with their habits more than these formal meditation practices. So we start with a, a very different approach by teaching them, you know, how to map out these habit loops around anxiety. And then we have them bring awareness in in those moments. And before before even going to you know, a mindfulness practice, we have them really pay attention to see what they're getting from worrying. So for example, if someone is to map out a, a habit loop, uh, you know, the anxiety, the feeling of anxiety triggers the mental behavior of worrying. And, that wor- and I wanna highlight that because a lot of people, they only think of physical behaviors like eating as a behavior, but there are plenty of mental behaviors and they all count. Worrying in particular, right? There are direct results of worrying, which is it they make us more, well, the more we worry, the more it makes us more anxious. So having somebody map that out just helps them see that really clearly. I'll give a concrete example where, you know, I had a patient that was referred to me for anxiety. And when we, you know, I started digging his history, he talked about how he was, you know, he was about 40 years of age. And um, he said, you know, in the last two years, he had started to 
have these thoughts about how, when he was driving his car, he felt like he was in a speeding bullet and he would have these thoughts about getting in a car accident. These led to him starting to get panic attacks. His panic attacks led to him avoiding driving on the highway. And when he comes to see me, he's got full-blown panic disorder. Oh, on top of his generalized anxiety disorder, which he'd probably had for at least two decades, right? So hmm. a lot of anxiety. Mm -hmm. I pull out a piece of blank piece of paper. I just write trigger behavior result on it. And I say, let me make sure I've got, you know, I understand what's happening. And he said, I said, so your, your thoughts, those are the triggers that are driving, driving, ha -ha, they're uh, leading you to not drive on the highway. <laughs> There's the behavior. And then the result is you're avoiding having panic attacks. Is that right? And he said, yeah. And he also got this wild look in his eye. And he said, you know, I never noticed that before because he could see the loop yeah. where it was driving the process. So that's the place to start for anybody. And then the next place is to ask, what am I getting from the worrying? Mm -hmm. You know, is the, the worrying didn't keep him safer. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, it was just that the worrying was making him more anxious. And so that's where somebody really has to pay attention and see, what am I getting from this? Just like paying attention when we eat a new piece of, you know, a new chocolate cake at a new bakery, we've got to see, is this any good? And we, we've, we've been conditioned through our own habits to think that worrying is good, you know, mm -hmm. but in fact, it's not, there's no evidence to show that worrying helps us survive. In fact, it makes us more anxious. It raises our blood pressure. It does all sorts of things that, that are not helpful for us. Mm -hmm. almost impeding that process of being a better defensive driver. If you're busy worrying and you're distracted by these worries, you're actually way more at risk. Right? Absolutely. And so looking at kind of that example and helping someone move into a space where they just understand what's happening in their brain, I think is so crucial. And I do really appreciate that about your app is that there's that psychoeducation piece of like, do you even understand what's happening before we start shifting over into, okay, do this seven minute meditation. It's like, but do you really know how these behaviors are serving you? And I have to imagine even some of that, I guess by th my own theory that that even helps better challenge kind of what's already been encoded. Because if I have encoded worry as something that's helpful to me, or at least I've made the assumption that it's helpful to me. And now I'm looking at it on paper and going, Oh, it's not, that's got to help the process. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And the nice thing there is, you know, we don't have to bring in our thinking brain, you know, our, our cognitive control or our willpower brain to, say, oh, that's bad for me. You know, I've, I've all, so many patients, you all probably see this as well, where I, you know, that joke, we should all over ourselves, you know, and they think, <laughs> oh, I shouldn't worry. I shouldn't overeat. I shouldn't this, I should, you know, I should use this mindfulness app or whatever, but the shoulding doesn't actually work. It's just, it just gets us stuck. So here it simplifies things because all we need to do is pay attention and then ask this question, mm -hmm. get curious, like, oh, is this worrying actually making my life better? And by extension, is it making my family members' lives better? You know, <laughs> if we worry about our kids or worry about our parents or worry about our spouses, you know, how is that how's that affecting their lives as well? Right. One of the things that, that surprises me, especially when I'm, I'm working with younger people, is that the majority <laughs> the majority of us don't even have a clue how our mind works. Mm -hmm. And we have no education on on what you're talking about and, and what you present in in your app and in, in unwinding anxiety. It's like we we don't 
nobody has that framework to work from. And every time I show anybody this or, or I do a lecture on it, it's like, oh, my God. Like, how did, how did we not, how is this not, like, common info that everybody knows? And once you kind of see it, it's like, it's such an easy segue into, into you know, why mindfulness would, would be something that you would want to do or be interested in. I can't emphasize enough on how important that is to have that psychoeducation piece in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wish I had had it. You know, I... Feel like I spent ten years yeah. meditating, beating my head against a wall, thinking, "Oh, I should pay attention to my breath. Why can't I pay attention to my breath? What's wrong with me?" You know, <laughs> I have to say, my full disclosure, or uh, maybe this is too much information, but my my first seven day silent meditation retreat, I did this during medical school, and by day three, I was crying uncontrollably yeah. on the shoulder of the retreat manager because I was like, I can get into medical school, but I can't pay attention to my breath. What's wrong with me? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. So intellectual that that's actually a barrier, right? Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I spend so much time thinking that I actually don't know how to just feel and be present. None of us in this room yeah. share that. <laughs> yeah. Before we kind of move into the importance of mindfulness, and I know that you kind of write about this in, in your book, Unwinding Anxiety. So for anyone that's listening, that's like, I need more of this info, please, please, please read this book. Before we shift into that, can you just help us connect the dots a little bit about over the past two years, why we're seeing so much more anxiety and kind of this idea of like the meme that I keep getting sent. That's like, we could really use some precedented times right around now. (laughs) Just how does this all kind of fit (laughs) with what's happening in your brain? I love that. Yes. Well, I think that meme says it all right. Unprecedented equals uncertainty. We've never had something like this happen to those of us that are alive right now. You know, the last big pandemic was over 100 years ago. And those were also very different times. You know, they didn't have the tools that we have to work with uh, with these things. So it's all about uncertainty. And it's not just one uncertainty. It is uncertainty upon uncertainty. So, you know, we had uncertainty around how dangerous COVID-19 was. And, you know, all the medical uncertainties and all these, you know, false hopes with, you know, these crazy treatments that didn't end up working. And then, you know, all, all the stuff that, that comes with having to actually do the science to figure out what, you know, what works. So, for example, developing a good vaccine. On top of that, we have economic uncertainty. We had uncertainty at school, you know, et cetera. The, I remember I was teaching class the day that Brown was announcing that what they were going to do. Um, with the semester, you know, as things were starting to, to shake, come down really quickly. And, I, you know, my students, they couldn't pay attention in class. So I was like, okay, let's stop. Somebody open, check your email, somebody read the email to us, you know, and so they read the email from the president, they, they had announced that they were closing school, you know, everybody's going home at spring break, which is like the next week, and they were not coming back for the semester. And literally, my seniors, they all broke out crying because, you know, it was like this was their senior spring and it was it was over, you mm-hmm. know. And so there's education, there's you know, all these other uncertainties that are layered on top of this one big uncertainty that's been that's been affecting the entire world. So, you know, let's have some precedented times means, hey, can we get things, you know, that are a little more certain? And, you know, mm-hmm. we're, we're seeing a lot of uncertainty, you know, environmental uncertainty, 
just happens to coincide with this pandemic coming along. So uncertainty is really the, the name of the game here. The uncertainty is never is not really going to change. I mean, there are going to be times where there's a lot more uncertainty. And I think that's why these last couple of years, there's been a ton of anxiety. But the only certain thing is uncertainty, you know, that things are uncertain. Right. So what we can do is learn to work with uncertainty. And instead of, you know, we, we tend to be in our comfort zones and we get, you know, all the cons <laughs> this consumerist culture, a lot of it's around, hey, let's help you feel comfortable and stay in your comfort zone mm -hmm. to the point where people are so comfortable in their comfort zones that anytime they venture out, they go into their panic zone because they're not used to being uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And then the people say, well, buy this and then you'll be comfortable again. <laughs> um, so it's not just about consuming things, right? We're seeing the environmental impacts of that. It's about learning to, instead of going, oh no, there's something different here going, oh, and moving from our panic zone into our growth zone so that we can learn to be okay with uncertainty and we can even lean into it and say, okay, this is different. This is what, what do I need to do right now as compared to, oh no, let me run back into the safety of my comfort zone. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uncertainty, uncertainty ain't going away. I mean, it kind of, <laughs> it, it kind of makes me think that I feel like we're all so comfortable in our own anxiety that just kind of mm -hmm. becomes the norm. And it's like, oh yeah, let's mm -hmm. just be anxious because it's better than panicking. You know, and it's and another thing that I wanted to ask you and touch on. I'm just thinking about this now is that we have like general anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder. But I feel like so many people are just kind of living with this baseline anxiety. And that's kind of been like mm -hmm. our cultural norm for a long time. And I mm -hmm. want to take this in. Think about this as we start talking about mindfulness is like not everybody's going to be diagnosed with a generalized anxiety disorder. But we all experience some type of anxiety at some level. And. I don't think that a lot of times we even realize that because it's such a normal part of the way that we live and function that we never really paid attention to it because we've always felt it. It's just kind of like the norm. It is. I'm glad you bring that forward. There's a fair amount of research showing that you know, we, we become so comfortable and so identified with these things. And yeah. I'm thinking of a study done with depression where somebody's so identified with depression they, you know, when given choices, they'll pick depressing music or depressing images or, you know, not even choose to step out of it. And it's not because this, we think that we have a choice. It's predictable. <laughs> I don't want to make it sound like, oh, you could just, you know, open door one and suddenly your life is perfect. Uh, <laughs> the way it works is that our brains, they try to try to form habits as quickly as possible. And we can form the habit around a mindset where it's like, I am an anxious person. In fact, there was somebody that was pilot testing our Unwinding Anxiety app who wrote me an email that was so compelling to me that I incorporated that into the very last modules of our core part of our training. And I, she wrote something like, you know, I feel like this anxiety is deeply etched in my bones. And the way she described it was she was so identified with anxiety, she couldn't imagine her life without it. Mm -hmm. And that comes mm -hmm. back to this familiarity thing, Right comfort zone doesn't necessarily mean a uh, happy zone. It just means what we know, mm -hmm. you know, we go to what we know. So if we're anxious, we, that's a familiar and comfortable feeling, even though anxiety isn't very comfortable, <laughs> but it's comfortable right. in the, in the familiarity. And in fact, uh, this patient that I was, was talking about, I write a little bit about him in my book. He was so comfortable or so familiar with anxiety because he'd had it for about 30 years 
that when he started moving outside of being anxious all the time, he came into one of my office visits and he's like, it's so weird. It's like, I'm anxious that I'm not anxious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Cause there's that predictability. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's like when, when you, when you know the result of what's going to happen by being mm-hmm. anxious, like that provides some sort of comfort and safety. But once you step out of that paradigm, it's like, Oh, there, there, here comes the anx- the uncertainty. Well, and that and that makes me think of of the people, including me, who self sabotage because I'm uncomfortable when things are going <laughs> well. <laughs> you know, I'm mm-hmm. I'm more I'm familiar in the down in the in the dirt. You know, I, it, when I'm when I'm struggling, that's what I'm most familiar with. So when I when things are going well and I'm starting to do well and all these things, I'm checking all the boxes. I'm like, ooh, this doesn't feel right. <laughs> yeah. Let me do something to knock yeah. me off this pedestal. <laughs> <laughs> I think when it comes to all the neuroscience, we talk a lot about just like the homeostasis and kind of our brain always trying to get back to this normal baseline that it's used to, but we forget about all the behavioral ways that we do that. Like I think about traveling, I always get like travel kind of anxiety just leading up to traveling Mm -hmm. and I've gotten to the point behaviorally in habit formation of like setting aside time to like take longer to do the things that I need to do because I'm going to be anxious and if for whatever reason, one time I just wasn't anxious, I would be like, well, how do I fill this time? It was set aside for me to be anxious and to get stuff done. And, you know, just that predictability of that almost is a comfort zone that is now part of my encoded memory of travel and prediction of what travel is always going to look like. And so when we start kind of these other behaviors that we start really looking at it. We start really trying to encode it in a new way or try new ways. There is kind of this pull back to, okay, but this is what I know. And this is what kind of feels good, even though I don't need it. And it's so unproductive. Yeah. yeah well said. Absolutely. The relationship between alcohol and anxiety. Can you touch on that a little bit? I'd be happy to. And I'd be curious to hear what you all see as well. But I see two main flavors of this. So one is that alcohol is a way to distract ourselves. So I've seen, and I've seen a ton of this uh, with this pandemic where people have turned to with the anxiety and the uncertainty that's uncomfortable. So they turn to something to distract themselves. So the people, you know, was it the quarantine 15 that had to get updated to the quarantine 30 <laughs> as people were gaining weight because they were stress eating. Right. So there's eating, there's Netflix, there's social media, and there's alcohol, right, as a way to distract ourselves. So that's one thing that I see. And I've seen plenty of patients where anxiety was the underlying issue, and they were referred to me for alcohol use disorder. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, it's really getting at like, what is, we'd map this stuff out, like, what is it that's driving the drinking? And for, for one of my patients, it was anxiety that was leading him to procrastinate, which would then feed back and drive more anxiety. And then he would drink. Yeah. Uh, and so by late afternoon, mm-hmm. he'd start drinking. And then, you know, he was drinking eight, throwing back six, to eight drinks at night. And then he'd wake up in the morning anxious mm-hmm. uh, on top of that because he, you know, he hadn't gotten any of his work done. So that's one piece. The other piece I see is where people have learned to drink alcohol uh, in response to the anxiety, but the, 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 the feeling of especially the hangover and the, the consequences that they get from the drinking itself feeds and, and gives them feelings that feel like anxiety. Mm-hmm. And then it triggers them to triggers their anxiety to, to uh, ramp up. Huh. So it's like the two play mm-hmm. off of each other where they, they drink in a way that they think it's going to help their anxiety. But in fact, it's actually driving it. 
And that's the yeah. loop, right? Is like we've encoded that short-term reward as like, this is really going to help. This is going to be super yummy, feel really good. And we're not aware of, okay, when I'm having this one drink, how am I feeling right now? Is this as rewarding as I thought it would be? Kind of doing all that cataloging around creating a new memory. We just default to what felt good last week and I'm just going to do it again. And it's always going to feel good. And that's just kind of the set and forget piece. Am I understanding that correctly? Absolutely. Yes. And we, you know, that set and forget could have happened years and years ago, mm-hmm. you know, as a, as an example, uh, most of my patients who come in and want to quit smoking, they start smoking around the age of 13 on average, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, and they're in there, you know, they've been smoking for decades. I, one guy that came in, he'd been smoking 40 years and we mapped out the number of times he had reinforced that habit loop. It was around 293,000 <laughs> yeah. times. Right. And so Pretty I, know, ingrained. I mean, that, that, that was the first thing that I noticed when I quit smoking was I had no idea how much of a anxiolytic nicotine and, and cigarettes were. Mm. And yeah. it wasn't because, you know, the nicotine was a constant flow. I'm smoking a pack a day and I don't even know that what I'm actually doing is I'm trying to treat this like underlying baseline anxiety that I have. And I probably didn't have a diagnosable anxiety disorder, but it was kind of what I was talking about earlier. It's just like that anxiety that we all live with. And that nicotine was the thing that constantly just pushed, pushed, pushed it down and kept me from feeling it. And, and I also want to talk to you about how like mild to moderate drinkers tend to fall into that kind of same routine to where they have that underlying anxiety don't even know it because they've been living with it forever but they're using this substance to suppress it and it and it works oh yeah it's relief Mm -hmm. it's temporary relief yeah yes it does and i think that's probably what i see the most of is you know people Mm -hmm. who are anxious but they don't have you know their drinking isn't leading to major negative consequences Mm -hmm. but they're still you know they're they're even if it's one to two drinks a night or a day, or they, you know, they all, you know, we can see all these variations on that where they're just, they're just kind of kicking the can down the road. They're not recognizing the anxiety. They're reinforcing these habit loops that might not even be helpful for them at all. You know, it's interesting to watch as an addiction psychiatrist over the last, even the last 10 years, how the recommendations for alcohol, you know, They've been gone down and down and down to the point where um, there's no recommended level of drinking now that is considered healthy. Right. You know, now that they've kind of mm-hmm. flushed the uh, the wine industry funded studies down right. or whatever. <laughs> you know, and it's not to say if somebody has a drink or whatever, you know, it's going to end their life. Um, but the idea is that you know it's just not healthy for us. And if you think about mm-hmm. it, just kind of covering over something that we that would probably be helpful to work with like anxiety. Mm-hmm. That's just going to perpetuate the, that problem itself. Yeah. Like you're pointing out with, with smoking can do the you know, same, same thing. The triggers, because I, I loved what you said about you often associate, you know, the anxiety or, or, you know, you wake up the next day and you've got all this, this, this anxiety as a result of the drinking. But what you were saying is, is it actually kind of the acute withdrawal creates a symptom that potentially is a trigger for anxiety. That's yes. fascinating to me. What so you know you often hear mm-hmm. caffeine big trigger for for anxiety. Is that is that accurate? Yes, so if you think of the physical sensations that we associate with anxiety, 
Yeah. So what? Just name a couple. Yeah, your heart racing. Yeah, yeah. Your, your heart tum- racing, stomach sweating, throat yep. closing. So up. what does caffeine do? Oh, it makes your heart rate, <laughs> right. makes you sweat, makes your makes stomach your, work. You know, your guts move. Makes you hyper focus on yeah. things. Yeah, on worrying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it can be. We can have a chemical thing that creates that leads to the same physiologic changes. So, for example, making our heart race. And then it triggers something that's called somatic memory. So if we, which is just a fancy term for memory that's kind of of physically oriented things. So if we have learned to associate anxiety with racing hard and sweating, if something else makes our heart race and makes it sweat, our brain says, oh, I must be anxious right now, right? Unless we're Mm -hmm. exercising or something. And then we've learned to associate sweating and racing heart with exercising. So Notice how that physiology is the same, but in different scenarios, we've learned, oh, I'm exercising, that's good. Or versus I drink some caffeine and now my heart's racing. Oh, maybe I'm anxious. And then our brain's like, well, it feels like you're anxious. You must be anxious. <laughs> yeah, <And now laughs> you're really anxious. Let's have right. a panic attack. Yeah, yeah right. Now, you're, now I'm thinking about it. And boy, this is really bad. <laughs> I had a little bit of an epiphany listening to part of Unwinding Anxiety that, and I'm sure it's much more complex than this, but that in kind of the earlier days where there was a lot of prescribing and abuse, so a medication for our listeners, a medication that makes you violently ill if you consume alcohol, if you are someone who is attempting to remove alcohol from your life, this was a widely prescribed kind of medication, I don't know, what, 30, 40 years ago. And I had kind of this light bulb moment of without the implementation of mindfulness and kind of the guidance around how to become more mindful or re-encode this as something that maybe isn't creating a ton of pleasure, this medication almost creates this experience where you don't really have a choice whether to re-encode it or not because it's such a salient experience. It's so strong. You get so sick and so nauseous, Mm -hmm. so ill that I'm assuming that there is kind of a natural encoding, re-encoding process of like, hey, this thing's bad. So even though since 15, you've been associating it with feeling really, really good instantly, here's this medication that's going to help you re-encode this as yuck. Yes. And it, so you think of it as kind of punishment encoding. So it's like a, where, right. where it was warning in the past, now it's punishing, but that's when you add in one other ingredient or, you know, which is that the antibuse, what I find and antibuse is still available. I occasionally have patients that are on it. The, the problem is mm-hmm. it, you know, it works really well if you're, if you on take it, it. In terms of, yeah, <laughs> if you take it every but day, <laughs> it's, it's pretty straightforward. And this is what my patients yep. do. They just plan. They're like, okay, mm-hmm. if I stop, mm-hmm. you know, in, in five days, I can have another drink. I'm not saying that is, you know, mm-hmm. it's different for everyone, but, uh, you know, it's not, and they all know this, they know exactly how long it takes to get that antibodies out of their system so that they're not sick when they start mm-hmm. drinking. So we can try to do these artificial things to say, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to put right. this, this stop that, you know, but it's kind of like locking the door and then they find the key and they're like, Oh, the door opened again. As compared to opening mm-hmm. the door, walking in the room and asking ourselves, do I really want to be in this room? So suddenly now they've got choice as compared to, you know, we can think, well, I can choose to take a medication just like I can choose to stop taking it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But here, if we walk in the room and we realize, I just don't want to be here. That's a whole different type of learning, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's not like suddenly we're going to become enamored with the room. 
it, when we, we it, I think of this as disenchantment, you know, whether it's overeating and saying, wow, that's really not doing this for me or drinking too much and seeing all the negative consequences, including, you know, the anxiety, the problems with sleep and all of that. When we see that really clearly, then we don't have to use our willpower to say, I shouldn't drink, but we can ask ourselves, what am I getting from this? And is this actually improving my life? You know, mm -hmm. and where is it, where is it that I can actually live in the ultimate, you know, happy, healthy life. And that's where awareness comes in. So can you talk a little bit about the disenchantment process and how that fits with kind of the recommendation for mindfulness? Sure. And I, you know, I would say there are a lot of different conceptions around what mindfulness is these days. So mm -hmm. I actually like to use. So the components, the two key components that I think of that make up mindfulness are awareness and curiosity. So we can even break it down to these key elements. And so if, if the word mindfulness is confusing for people, let's just use what, what we're talking about, which is awareness and curiosity, right? So bringing, bring, being aware of what's happening and being curious, not assuming we know what's going to happen. And that helps us kind of keep an open mind to what's happening. That's really what the concept of mindfulness is about. So as we were talking about with this reward value piece earlier, awareness, having a curious awareness and not assuming we know what's going to happen is the key to changing any behavior. And it's, we've talked about kind of breaking bad habits, you know, like the habit of worrying or overeating or whatever, but we can also use this to instill habits that are healthy, that help us. So for example, if we worry a lot, we can be curious and we can ask ourselves, what do I get from this? I like that simple question. What do I get mm -hmm. from this? If we worry, if we smoke a cigarette, my patients really pay attention as they smoke and they realize that cigarettes are like crap. You know, <laughs> when they see that, that's where they become disenchanted. They can't unsee it. They can't untaste a cigarette. They can't unsmell a cigarette, especially when they've stopped smoking for a while. Right, because they're they can smell better. <laughs> they're like, wow, that really, who's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. This, this really does not smell very good. You know, there's a reason that perfume is not labeled. You know, not uh, scented as smoke. Right? <laughs> right. Marlboro, little said, Marlboro, Marlboro, right here. <laughs> <laughs> that's, right, that's right. My Marlboro deodorant. Yeah. You know, oh. Uh, head on in the morning, <laughs> honey. I promise I'm not smoking again. It's this new, yeah, this it's new, <laughs> this new deodorant. Everybody says it's all the rage, and they're like, uh, "Who duped you?" Yeah. So that's where the disenchantment comes in, and it comes in through, you know, paying attention and seeing what we're really getting from something. And the other piece to that is we can we can the curiosity itself can become the new behavior. We were talking earlier about uncertainty being, nice. you know, that's not going away. Well, can, mm. can we actually lean into uncertainty by being curious instead of, you know, worrying? So, oh, no, it doesn't feel very good. Where we're like, oh, that actually already feels better than starting to get caught in a worry loop. So from a reinforcement learning standpoint, our brain is going to prefer curiosity to worry. The key is we have to pay attention and help our brain see those connections really clearly. What do I get from worrying? And what do I get from being curious in that moment? Can you tell us a little bit how, about how this is kind of incorporated into your programs and apps and just what this kind of practice could look like for someone starting out? Yes, it's, it's relatively simple. It's, I think of it as a three-step process. So the first step is just mapping out the habit loop. You know, what's the trigger? What's the behavior? What's the result? 
and that could be anything from you know worrying to watching too much Netflix to checking too much social media to drinking too much to whatever. The second step is comes to this disenchantment piece, which is asking ourselves, what am I getting from this? And not intellectually, but really feeling into our direct experience. You know, what do I get from worrying? Well, it makes me more anxious, right? So there's an example of starting to become disenchanted with the, the behavior. We can do this with any, any behavior that, that's not helping us. That disenchantment opens the space for what I call finding the bigger, better offer, the BBO. And here, mm. I think of two general categories of curiosity and kindness. So if we're worried, we can bring curiosity in. You know, if we have a craving for something, we can bring curiosity in and be curious about what those feelings of craving feel like as compared to getting sucked into a habit loop of whatever the behavior is. Kindness comes in really handy when we are in the habit of beating ourselves up. So when we judge ourselves, you know, et cetera, et cetera, we can compare that. Like, what's it feel like when I beat myself up? Well, it doesn't feel good. Versus what does it feel like when I'm kind to myself? It feels much better. And if we can see that connection, that kindness feels better. And this isn't some Pollyannish toxic positivity type of kindness. This is like genuine kindness. Like we're truly, you know, being kind to ourselves. Or we can even just imagine what it's like when somebody else has been kind to us as a way to kind of compare those two. When we, when we make that comparison to our brain, it's a no-brainer. So that three-step process, all, you know, all three steps require awareness. We've got to be aware to map out a habit loop. We have to be aware to see how unrewarding a behavior is or how rewarding a different behavior is. And then that third step is bringing, is helping us step out of the old habit loop into something that helps us flourish. The most attractive part about what you just said is that it, there, those aren't like tangible, actionable steps. Like you can actually do that in your mind. And that's why I think from mm -hmm. like a clinical perspective, it's so important for people to be educated on that process and those feedback loops and, and, and just the psychoeducation piece mm -hmm. because you can grasp that conceptually without having to really practice any type of new behavior or make any significant behavioral change. And then, Absolutely. And, and, and just by doing that and engaging in it, you're now kind of breaking the, breaking the cycle and looking at it objectively and it makes it a little bit more manageable. It makes that curiosity piece easier. That's Absolutely. fascinating. And, and as Gabby Reese says, it's free. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Awareness is free. Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, building on that, what's the joke? You must be present to win. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's right. There was one piece that um, really spoke to me when I was listening to some of your work is just this idea of mm -hmm. just be patient as well. Like you're probably going to fumble through this and that's totally fine. And I think that's something we talk a lot about on our podcast, just about the gray area drinker that's maybe thinking about starting to address some of these things, whether it's anxiety whether it's a different habit kind of formation, whether it's, you know, some other behavior that they're trying to address, if we've got to really consider how long this loop has been in place and, and how deeply set it is, and maybe even knowing kind of those realistic numbers around how many times it's going to take to change that encoded piece and just do you have any kind of words of inspiration, words of comfort for people and just kind of encouraging them to be patient? Yes. I, and I get this, you know, somebody, we have an online community for our, uh, for our apps. And so often I get this question, you know, somebody writes and they say, you know, 
I, whether it's the eat right now or the unwinding anxiety app, they say, you know, I've been, you know, it, this doesn't seem to be working. And so I asked them, well, how long have you been in the program? They said, well, I've been using the app for two weeks now. And then I asked, how long have you been anxious? Yeah. Said, oh, 30 years. And, and so I just, I just say, okay, <laughs> yeah. well, in, in just giving them, helping them get that perspective, you know, whether it's somebody who's smoked to help them see it's been 300,000 times right. that they reinforce the habit or whatever. The good news is you don't, it doesn't take, you know, 30 years to, to unwind the anxiety. It, it can happen pretty quickly, but we have to be patient with the process. And the more we bring awareness in, the more that disenchantment takes hold quickly, more the more quickly it takes hold because we're seeing really clearly that it's not helping us. And that's really what provides the change. So what I, you know, I help them get some perspective and you know, that often helps a lot for them just to be patient. And I also help them map out habit loops around just being impatient where, you know, I'm not where I want to be yet. There's the trigger. And then the behavior is to do something related to being impatient, like saying this doesn't work. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then helping them see, oh, impatience actually doesn't help me learn, right? Impatience makes me, doesn't help me move into my new growth zone and learn from this. It actually turns me away it from it. Makes me angry. So, frustrated. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So even there, we can use that as a learning opportunity to see, oh, well, what's the habit loop around impatience? and help them see that clearly so they can step out of that habit loop as well. And then they get a twofer. Beautiful. We always wrap up our interviews, Dr. Judd, with this last question. And it's really, if there were three kind of main takeaways that you would want our listeners to have today about anxiety or moving into awareness, what would they be? Hmm. The first one is it's not your fault. So often people think there's something wrong with them mm -hmm. if they're anxious. So this is just our survival brain trying to help us survive. And it's kind of, you know, slightly misguided. The second thing I would say is, <laughs> and you can, you know, you can, you can learn how your brain works so you can work with it instead of working against it or running away from it. And so here, you know, as we talked about simple processes that can actually help us overcome these things. And you know, our clinical studies, we've gotten gangbuster results. We've now have three positive clinical trials, you know, all funded by the NIH, um, one with generalized anxiety disorder, mm -hmm. where as I might have mentioned, it was a 67% reduction in anxiety. Wow. So we can see big change by understanding that and targeting the process. The third thing I would say is it's all about awareness. It's not about willpower. It's not about force. It's not about grit. And we all have awareness. And as you all mentioned, awareness is free, as, as Gabby Reese puts it. Awareness <laughs> is free. So those are the three things I would say. I'm blown away. I could honestly talk to you for hours about this. I think this is really, it fits so well with a lot of our mission. And even though today really was a lot more about anxiety and mindfulness and less about alcohol, I think this is one of the most requested kind of topics and most mm -hmm frequent complaints that we hear and that we share. <laughs> and I think yeah. just being able to kind of dive into some, some real knowledge around it and geek out around the, the neuroscience and the, the, the really tangible solutions that are evidence-based. I can't thank you enough. Yeah. yeah and I, I want to take a second to thank you. You know, I've, I've read the craving mind and unwinding anxiety and I give both of those books to my clients fairly regularly and, and I turn them on to the unwinding anxiety app and I 
you know, I, I just want to thank you for doing the research that you do and, and having the passion that you have around this stuff. Thanks for coming on today. No, it's my pleasure. I think we're all here to try to help our clients and patients live better lives. And so it's, you know, it's great to, to share this conversation with like-minded individuals. So thank you for having me. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and guests and are not a substitute for medical advice. If you feel like you may need professional help, here are some resources. For the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration hotline, call 1-800-662-4357 or visit smsa.gov. For listeners in the Charlotte, North Carolina community, visit dilworthcenter.org or call 704-372-6969 or visit theblanchardinstitute.com or call 704-288-1097.